seekers, explorers, and renegades out there, welcome to another episode of the Alchemy Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Lemke. Trust is a prerequisite for us to progress and move on and evolve as humanity. And it comes out of us being able to build bridges to other people, compassion, empathy, connection, and so forth. If we don't have that platform, we will continue to be separated and divided within society. Today in this episode we are going to use uh, homelessness, or the uh, society's approach to homelessness rather, as a backdrop to explore this aspect of trust for the wider aspects of society. In the old paradigm of humanity, the idea of trust is something that was to be earned. You had to earn your trust in order for someone to trust you. But that then begs the question, what will it take for that person to trust you? If you don't trust them, how are they going to trust you? Someone has to take the first step. And as you've probably heard me many times before on this podcast talking about that we as individuals have to show up as the ultimate version of ourselves and show up up as uh, role models in our communities, societies and our networks and that's the only way we are going to uh, see this progress going forward. And the same goes for trust. The only way for trust to be embodied within the human collective consciousness is for each of us to start out by showing up trusting to trust others that will then garner the trust for ourselves and in order to trust others we have to first trust ourselves so i hope with this conversation that will uh, challenge you to think about your relationship with trust and uh, how you apply that to the big aspect of your community your family your society and so forth so let's dive in the best way to find out if you can trust somebody is to trust them. And this comes from Ernest Hemingway, uh, famed author. Um, And that is the kind of meat and potato of our conversation today. We are talking about trusting one another, but we're going to have this conversation uh, as a backdrop to the process of helping homeless people uh, get off the street and to uh, reintegrate back into society because uh, there are essentially two ways of doing it. Uh, Asking someone to prove their their worth as in the worth of the assistance or you can trust them that they are doing what they can to uh, get themselves sorted and get off the street as it were. So Two ways of doing it, and that's why this uh, uh, this uh, quote was apt for today. So we have today, we have uh, Josie with us from Bench Outreach, and uh, she is uh, one of the people that are working with a concept called Ho- Housing First. And Housing First was a... Uh, or is, or was, the brainchild of uh, Dr. Sam uh, Sen Berries, uh, a US-based psychiatrist, and he kind of came up with this uh, early 90s, and uh, Josie is working on exactly that. Housing First is her expertise, and um, so uh, I would like uh, Josie to 
feel welcome and uh, to give us a little bit about her background, but also talk a little bit about kind of the old system vis-a-vis -vis the uh, the housing first system. So welcome, Josie. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so just to, to introduce myself, um, I work uh, for a homelessness charity in South East London, um, which has been around for 20 years this year, actually. Um, and we've been doing Housing First for eight years. So one of the earlier ones in the UK. Um, and we've kind of developed over the years to gain quite a few clients. That's what, how we refer to our service users um, as clients uh, who have been long-term homeless and long-term rough sleeping um, and have ended up struggling with all the different systems. And that's when they get referred to us when with they think maybe a different approach is needed. Um, and I am the women's specialist um, on our Housing First programme, just to make sure we're really meeting the needs of every different type of client. All right, cool. So that is obviously you are on the on the front line uh, of this uh, campaign, as it were, to alleviate the pressure on uh, on people that are homeless and to help them uh, reintegrate great back into society. So, if you're looking at the how it used to work. If you can describe that, and I, I, the reason I've kind of stepped into this uh, this whole housing first concept and having this uh, podcast conversation about it is that I read an article, and I've shown you this, Josie, but in uh, Positive News in uh, the let's see, October December twenty two uh, edition, uh, and uh, there they talk about the different steps that a homeless person in America, I would say, had to take. And uh, essentially it was, yeah, so a homeless veteran uh, in in the old system where they began, they would have uh, taken him or her 720 days and 76 bureaucratic steps to move from the street into housing. Uh, and today, the wait for that person in America is only 32 days with the housing first. So talk to us a little bit about the old system. What was the premise and the kind of concept of that? And how does housing first work? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing to point out is that we've not um, completely shifted from, as you say, the old system. And um, housing first is something that's ongoing as one kind of model that's being used for some clients, but there are still very much other systems going on at the same time. Um, and there's not housing first across the board in the in the UK yet, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. mm. Nor is it in America. This, uh, no. I, I know some uh, some towns and uh, states have gone the more, uh, or like even like Hungary, for example, have gone a little bit more on the extreme. They've they started uh, restricting the campaigns and kind of putting people into jails instead. So there are uh, kind of two directions on it. So now we're perfectly aware of that. So, <laughs> yeah. so thank, you. thank you for clarifying. Yeah. So um, the the kind of the way we think about housing first as a, as a newer way of doing things is, is you're right. They used, it used to be that um, 
the right to housing wasn't a given. Um, it used to be much more, you know, we can we can house you temporarily. We can house you in a in a hostel kind of system where it's one big building full of people with the same kind of issues, um, which makes it very difficult to then actually progress on. Um, and you would have to show that you're progressing, show that you're, you know, tackling your issues, whatever they might be, um, whether that's, you know, substance misuse, mental health, um, domestic abuse, criminal behaviour, um, before you were trusted, in a way, to um, to be able to move into independent living. Um, and that was often because the support then given when they were moving out independently wasn't uh, psychologically informed. It wasn't necessarily trauma informed. It wasn't enough to then hold that client when they moved on to, to be able to sustain that tenancy. Right. Um, so, yeah, often that led to, you know, eviction, breakdown of the tenancy and the person becoming homeless again and ending up going back through the system. Very successful, huh? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so they're basically in the old system, we're saying, okay, well, you're down and out and you're going to have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and uh, prove your mettle here in order for us to help you. Yeah, and a lot of that is is changing and has changed since the kind of 90s, really, where where understanding of trauma really started to take hold mm -hmm. on, a, on a more wide scale. I think before, where it used to be, there used to be a lot more blame on the individuals for, for failing to stay housed um, and right. not of understanding of why they might need more support and what that support needs to look like um, and that's really what housing first is all is all based around is is trauma-informed psychologically informed support that will actually help someone to build the confidence build the independence um and actually have a safe space to work on their on their psychological state to mm -hmm. be able to cope on their own as well so some of the statistics I pulled up uh, in relation to those two uh, topics or two items you brought up there. First, the uh, it says that 80% of the mental or 80% of the, the homeless people in this questionnaire in a way uh, quoted that they, they themselves identified to have uh, having mental health issues. Uh, but uh, in addition to that, 45% have uh, of them had uh, official diagnosis. Um, also, one item or one, one question there could be, do you feel that the shift that's happened, this idea of looking at the source and the reason for their homelessness, as opposed to just saying, well, you're homeless, it's your problem, deal with it. Um, do you think that could be also because we look at the public opinion and 52% today see it more as a, a, a kind of a system failure or societal failure, uh, whereas 17% see it as an individ, individual failure. Do you think it's a part of that shift in public opinion that has allowed uh, for the, the kind of changing to happen yeah i mean especially in in the uk in the last 
you know, 15 years or so with, with austerity and the impact that's had on public services. I think people can really, even people who wouldn't have been homeless or were much less likely to face that situation have been impacted by, by service cuts. Um, I think we can see people slipping through the net a bit and that does provide another explanation. Um, particularly if you look back as well in, in the past, the kind of children's services, social services that should be picking these things up really early on to prevent people from ending up in those situations are just so strict. Um, and yeah, that's just, that's well known in, in, in England at the very least. Well, it's the system oftentimes that traumatizes the people that then end up being homeless because oftentimes, and correct me if I'm wrong here, oftentimes it is those that have been kind of pushed through the social system from childhood, uh, foster parenting, being uh, in the foster care system, uh, that end up end up homeless. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's often those systems. Um, it's also poverty. It always uh, always comes back to poverty, which which causes people to need those systems, and then those systems don't always hold them. Right. Um, I mean, poverty brings with it a lot of trauma, just even from the things you have to worry about day to day, and then housing stability growing up, um, financial stability, whether you're going to have enough food to eat, all of that stuff does add trauma already without even any of the added levels of potentially violence or abuse. Right. So the um, we were talking about before, I, I saw a, statistics, a statistic online that the government is pushing in £2 billion into the, the challenge of uh, homelessness. And some of the things they were talking about is long-term supported housing for uh, those that are... Uh, have uh, more severe issues uh, but also to uh, uh, kind of find uh, make sure that people can find beds right so two billion pounds is a lot of money so how many homeless people do we have in the uk today if we're talking rough sleepers in this we're case talking rough sleepers um let me just refer back <laughs> i was just looking it up earlier um i think it's around 2,500 um, and 20% of those are in London so it's actually a huge disproportionate amount to London but um, yeah 2,440 estimated last year right. and that's based on a single night they do a street count um, in every area of the country um, and they see how many are out on a given night right. see it's not always the most uh, reliable statistic that gives it right. A so that doesn't include those that are actually in hostels and temporary housing. No, it doesn't include that. People. That could uh, literally the next night be out sleeping rough. Oh yeah, and and also um, we we refer to a group called hidden homeless, mm -hmm. um, which is much more likely to include uh, women in in. Yeah. So it's something I think about a lot um, in my role. But yeah. yeah, there's a huge amount of women uh, and, and other vulnerable people um, staying on people's sofas or maybe sex working and finding somewhere to stay that way. Um, squatting, living in kind of crack houses, that kind of 
situation who aren't counted as rough sleeping uh, when we do go and look look for the for that data. Yeah, because uh, that then balloons by by the uh, power of ten. I think it's massively. Yeah, yeah we're well, actually even more than that. We're talking about a quarter of a million uh, people that are homeless if we count the uh, hidden homeless as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So clearly, we we have a big uh, big challenge ahead here. But uh, so let's talk about housing first. Is you know how it works and how we uh, how it's been rather the the proof of its uh, uh, effectiveness. So some of the statistics I'm looking here at uh, in the article in uh, Positive News is that. Uh, for example, the uh, city of Houston, uh, when they adopted it 10 years ago, about the same time as you did, uh, or your organization, uh, had the sixth largest homeless population in, in the U.S. And by with this uh, system, they have been able to drop it by uh, 63%. Yeah. And that's huge. I mean, that's... You know, that's actually having a, a clear impact on the issue. Um, of course, um, we're looking at Helsinki, Finland, which probably didn't have a big homeless population to begin with, uh, but they are, with this process, uh, they're projecting that they're going to uh, entirely eradicate homelessness by 2025. So, I mean, those, those are just some of the uh, more glaring uh, statistics that I found in this article. Um, can you talk a little bit about the success ratio or the kind of the challenges with uh, uh, Housing First? How, how in your position being kind of that's what you do? <laughs> yeah, so um, I think when we first started Housing First, there was still uh, a lot of those clients who have been actually sleeping outside on the streets night after night for possibly decades, those really, really entrenched rough sleepers who have been who have been targeted by, you know, there are amazing programs out there and, and, and charities as well um, who are trying to target them and trying to get them into housing. And they're just it just nothing was sticking. Um, and I think, again, also the number of people in those hostels where there's such little room for, for growth if you are really entrenched in those in those problems. Um, so the big difference we've seen since we started Housing First is that that kind of entrenched rough sleeper in our area, which is the borough of Lewisham, you, you just don't get so many anymore. And that's partly due to government funding and the kind of homelessness reduction acts and things like that. But um, Housing Versus has played a huge role in that. We've got clients who the services know them. They've known them for years and they, they will say, I can't believe they're finally housed. I can't believe they've been in a flat. You know, not only do they have a flat, but they've been in that flat for two years, three years, four years and, and onwards, you know. Um, so I think that the biggest difference is in those really extreme cases. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean the problem of um, really high support needs clients has disappeared. And there will always be people with really severe issues going on. But the way we're able to tackle those without them just being stuck, because 
you know, there's a duty to house them and, and to help them because they're very vulnerable without just bouncing them between hostels, actually getting them in one place. Um, mm-hmm. And they can manage with the right support. They are, it does work. It's just we had to start off by proving it with a few difficult cases. And now, now we're on a bit of a roll with it. So I think the key there, and you, you, you touch upon it, is the, the idea of uh, giving them the support they need. So in the old system, it was prove that you can manage and then we'll give you the support. Here it's, we will give you the support so, you, so that you can succeed, so you, that you can succeed, right? Yeah, and another really key thing, um, one of the, the key principles in Housing First is that the support and the housing should actually be separate. So you can, you know, you start off, you're given a flat and we agree that we'll work together. But if they then don't engage with us over time and they don't engage with that support, we don't then take the housing away. Because yeah. in a lot of cases, uh, in hostels particularly, if a client just isn't turning up, um, they will, they'll be evicted because someone else will need that space. Um, whereas we make sure, you know, the housing comes first. If they can then engage with us to work on other stuff, that's great. And we will do our best to actively get them to engage, not just waiting for them to come to us as well. So what's the what's the success you see in in that approach as opposed to the other one? Do you feel that you said you're, you're on a bit of a roll uh, <laughs> in, in terms of statistics. And uh, I, I think, unfortunately, our society is uh, addicted to statistics. So it's uh, useful to uh, kind of present that. Uh, but how do you feel that it compares to the old system um, in terms of people being able to stay the course? Yeah, I, I don't actually have our exact statistics. Um, I just can anecdotally tell you these are clients who have been discussed at like tens and tens of meetings, you know, per year as being impossible to house. And that, you know, eight years later, some of them, as most of them, the vast majority of our clients from the beginning are still housed, right. um, which is incredible for them. Like it, it really is. Even getting them through the process of signing up for a flat and actually getting their rent paid and signing up for all the benefits they need and all that stuff. Well, so I think that's the problem, isn't it? If we we expect them to go out and be able to do all these things, like you say, simple things that or for us <laughs> are in society, simple things like setting mm-hmm. up a bank account, uh, you know, getting a job, uh, getting your utility bills uh, or utilities sorted all of those things i can imagine would be tremendously uh, overwhelming for someone completely who yeah. is in that situation because it it's not just one thing it's a hundred things uh, whereas you know sleeping rough then you have your sleeping bag and your or hopefully in a way and you kind of just your main goal is to make sure that you can get something to eat right yeah um so our clients when we first when they're first referred to us are very much in what i would call survival mode it's literally 
just constantly in this fight or flight mindset of I just need to stay alive, I need to eat, I need to try and be in a safe space. Once you add then substance misuse in, it's when can I get my next fix as well? And, you know, talking to any kind of authority figure, which often you have to do to jump through those hoops to getting housed, can be extremely triggering if you're someone who's been let down by a lot of authority and a lot of institutions. Um, so another of the of the housing first principles is uh just being flexible flexible support meeting clients where they're at we can be the the liaising person who i can you know i can meet my client wherever they want whether it's at their sleep site on the streets in their flat i can go with them to an appointment i can go to a cafe um and then i can be the person who does all the talking for them so that it's not hugely overwhelming because yeah there's so many things that can trigger someone who's quite mentally unstable um just through going through those official processes and i can be a bit of a, a buffer between those to help them just get through those those hoops um into the kind of stability yeah i know correct me if i'm wrong but it doesn't necessarily always have to be that someone has a mental condition that they were born with like a you know bipolar disorder or uh, you know uh, schizophrenia or something like that it could simply be you know uh, clinical depression yeah. anxiety uh, those kind of uh, things that are based on circumstances rather than uh, genetics yes um ptsd the big mm. one for us um all my clients have some kind of adverse childhood experience, um, particularly around abuse uh, as a child or really early drug use as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, I, one of my clients recently told me she first used heroin when she was 11 because someone gave it to her. You know, if you're growing up in circumstances, you're going to be psychologically damaged. And that's someone who would have been born maybe completely mentally healthy um it's all down to that early trauma so yeah and and that makes it really difficult then to to go into appointments or to especially if you feel as a homeless person if you've been judged a lot because people do make a lot of assumptions um you then end up in a mindset where you're going into appointments expecting to be judged and you're expecting that someone's looking down on you and it's going to make it very difficult to then get through that appointment um and again that's where i act as the the buffer by trying to go along with them through that process well and that's i suppose you have that the trust issue as well because as a child uh, the people that were there supposed to or supposed to look after you and be to protect you and so forth weren't uh, weren't doing that then the person is going to develop these huge trust issues with people of authority of anyone who might be willing or be interested in helping them uh, you know there, there will be this kind of cynicism uh, around that correct absolutely and then it then depends on what were the coping mechanisms they developed as a child to cope with the situations because one of the big problems 
we struggle with is clients just they stop engaging they just freeze off and they they don't want to speak to us because they've because their coping mechanism as a child was okay I can't trust anyone else so I'll just do it all myself Um, but often they actually can't quite cope with doing it all themselves so it's 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 that really careful balance of uh, respecting the client, showing respect, showing that we do care, we're not going to disappear and abandon them, um, even if they make mistakes, and that unconditional support that you should have from your parents from a very young age, but they, in the vast majority of cases, didn't have that relationship with someone who they could actually really count on. Yeah, that that is... You know, one of these things that we, I suppose most of us grow up with, are taking for granted that, you know, we, we, we can trust someone who is in a, we perceive in a, a position of authority or position of expertise, as it were. Um, so it's, uh, I think for most people, it's kind of hard to understand someone who has that built into the subconscious to, not being able to trust, um, you know, when someone is coming to help them, um, for them to actually prefer to run away than to be in a position where they can actually get help. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think when you're a child, you get so much of your self-worth and your self kind of your understanding of yourself through positive relationships with other people. Um, but if you don't have that that positive relationship from your parents, your caregivers, then you're left with this kind of void of, you know, I, I don't know who I can depend on. I don't know mm-hmm. that often it that leads to the kind of I'm not actually worth looking after. I'm not, you know, I don't have any value, mm-hmm. um, which, again, makes it very difficult for, for people to then be able to look after themselves because they don't think that they're worth it. Um, and again, that's something we, in a, in a psychologically informed uh, support environment, you really want to focus on showing the client, like, again, I am going to show up because you are worth something. And over time, you hope and you you pray that that starts to sink in and they can start yeah. themselves. Well, it is about building that trust uh, over yeah. time. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's, even if you look at people in general, people in society, this whole idea of worth is a challenge for a lot of people. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I, you know, I, I am worthy. I'm, uh, you know, when you sit in, when you bring people, when I work in hypnosis and in the psychotherapy and meditation and so forth, and working with clients. You know, I am enough. It's a huge hurdle for a lot of people. Because, oh, for most people, probably. You know, <laughs> and, it, and that's not necessarily because you know, parent our parents were bad. It was. It's just that there is this incongruency between adults and children. Adults not understanding that children are not a smaller version of adults. They mm-hmm. are actually children with children's minds and don't necessarily understand when a uh, when a parent says oh can't you ever do anything right yeah right just a simple comment like that could 
put someone in a very uh, could create that trauma imprint that that child then creates a future or their uh, their perception of the world uh they form that around that uh idea that oh i can't do anything right Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a very, as you, you'll know, as a, as a therapist, it's a very standard thing to have some kind of relationship with your parents that causes mm-hmm. you to internalise a kind of low self-esteem or, or self-image. But yeah, so that's, and then imagine that's been compounded with uh, potentially abuse as a child. Yeah. Not only do they not have time to, your parents not have time to listen to you, or to um, show you how to process your feelings or anything like that, but also they're actually maybe physically hurting you. Yeah. Um, you can see how the starting point is is much further behind um, your average person as well. Yeah, and the, perhaps the entire environment they grow up in is uh, there is uh, safety issues all around. Uh, you might not be safe at school. You might not be safe in the uh, housing estate that you're in um so the the it gets compounded because there's nowhere they're, they're safe yeah exactly and and physically and in terms of their relationships as well right. uh, again to, to bring it back to the trust thing you know you you're not safe in terms of your actual survival but you're not safe to trust the people around you um and to again like you know, our, our relationships with others are absolutely essential and, and the sense of community and looking after each other. We should be able to trust and depend on each other, um, in my in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, if we uh, if we all kind of did a healing journey for ourselves and uh, were able to show up as the optimal versions of ourselves with everybody else, then yes, that would be a beautiful thing. But uh, we're not quite there as humanity, but uh, we're working on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I'm very often trying to convince my clients, like they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry, you don't have to help me with that, or you've already done enough, or um, th- things like that. And I'm saying, no, it's it's actually okay to need help. You know, everyone needs help. Mm needs help you're homeless and i'm a housing support worker i can help you with that if you had a broken arm you'd go to a doctor you know it's convincing them that everyone should be able to ask for help when they're in a, in a really difficult situation i think we should com- uh, convince everybody of that uh, <laughs> not only people that come from a traumatic background or ptsd background i should say mm-hmm. um so uh, one thing i was kind of curious about is this attitude of you know people you, you put these people in hostels uh, homeless shelters and so forth and expect them to make a full recovery in that environment and then in order to then uh, gain their place in permanent housing uh, now of course there's a, a lot of other people with similar problems in that environment so if you it's like saying to an alcoholic okay well here's an aa meeting but uh, you have to go and uh, sleep in that pub over there yeah uh, right yes it's more or less a bit like that sometimes it does work for some people i mean it's a, it's a strange paradox the the idea of a hostel and i don't mean like a 
you know, a backpack hostel. I mean, a, a, what we call supported accommodation, mm-hmm. uh, which is for people with very, very high needs. Um, the idea is that the hostel will be staffed 24-7 um, so that it's actually safer for those clients because they wouldn't be safe in another environment. Mm-hmm. Um, for many, that's the opposite. Um, actually staying with all these other people in, in similarly awful circumstances is, is actually not safe. So, f- for example, um, in 2020, there was a survey of, of housing first services around the country. Um, so that's people who are actually in their own flat, not in a hostel. Um, 97% of them had substance misuse issues. So that's the vast majority. Um, all of my clients have substance misuse issues as well. And um, the, the idea of being in a hostel where that everyone else, probably the vast majority will also be on drugs or would be dealing it or be hounding you for the money that you owe them. Um, and you get into all these violent disputes and this constant watching your back. And even if you did want to stop, um, there will be a dealer who knows that you're there and they will go after you and, and offer you drugs again, you know. Mm. So for a lot of people, it's just this endless cycle. Um, and what we, yeah, what we find is that bringing people out of that system, even it's a risk, you know, housing first is always a risk. You're always trusting someone um, to live somewhere where there is no uh, security personnel there's no staff working there um but often once they get out of that environment they're actually able to have some some breathing space and, and recover um, do you find that they're able much more likely to shake their dependency in that environment certainly more likely um okay. it's thing that cat some people will never let go of completely but right. there's there's levels of of recovery right um when it comes to drug use you know that they've got safer using practices um for example they're not injecting they might be smoking instead which is much much safer um it might be that they're borrowing money less often and therefore not getting into kind of violent disputes um so yeah there's, there's levels of it and definitely mm-hmm. better i would say um in most cases in housing first um so the kind of support that they get, do they have access to psychotherapy? Do they have access to, uh, you know, dependency uh, services and so forth to, to help them uh, get off the, um, the dependency or, or, and uh, to deal with the causes of their coping mechanism, which is, in this case, the drug? Yeah, so... That's a really good point to to bring up the causes as well. Um, So, yes, basically, um, a lot, a huge part of Housing First is is partnerships with other organisations. We have sort of really good working relationships with individual staff. They know us as support workers. They know what kind of clients we have that they are potentially going to be struggling with engaging with recovery um so we're able to be as flexible as we possibly can and encourage that flex 
stability in these services as well to try and reach our client group definitely and there, there's been a lot more funding recently um, for drug services to go and do outreach on the streets as well which is really good to see um psychotherapy i wish there was more of it <laughs> all my all my clients could do with you know really specialist trauma therapy there's not a lot of it about unfortunately it's a lot better in some other countries right so uh, is it really like the nhs that give them support in that respect or theoretically theoretically yes yeah. <laughs> there's, there's not much there's a lot of um when you apply for therapy even through a gp the standard is six sessions of cbt mm-hmm. which is great for some people scratch mm-hmm. the surface for most yeah. clients to, to be honest um, well yeah no it's uh i i've, I've uh, my daughter oldest daughter uh, is uh, has experienced the uh, uh the care of the the uh, mental health system and uh, or health services and it's uh, you know they're doing the best they can with what they have uh, but unfortunately cbt is the only thing that goes around mm-hmm. so you know there are none of the other uh, proven methods that are a lot of kind of used in the system, which is very unfortunate because, uh, you know, the clients are not all the same, you know, we are all unique. So therefore, you know, you've got to be able to treat someone from the perspective of what they need and what their resources are and go from there. Um, So I, I think there's a lot that can be done on the mental health side. And I mean, I think she was on a waiting list to be assessed and it was like two and a half years to, and that was before COVID. Yeah. Once COVID hit, yeah, there was three and a half years. Yeah, and, and I, I don't want this to become a rant about services at all, but I will say, one, However. Thing, we, yeah, one thing we face a lot is that uh, mental health services, um, so in London, that's generally um, South London and Waterloo, while they can be amazing, they don't want to work with clients who have severe substance misuse issues. Right. They say, come back to me once you've dealt with your drug problem, which is frustrating. It's really frustrating because they obviously are. The reason they are doing the drugs is because of their psychological trauma. Yes. Yeah. So it's if really you deal with the psychological trauma, then they can drop the drugs. Yeah. When I first came across this issue, I was like, what <laughs> that's so silly but that is unfortunately how it is yeah. um, that's a really difficult so aren't there any any uh, like charity organizations out there that are able to provide those kind of more person-centered uh, psycho- uh, psychotherapy putic services uh it really varies um locally to us our um the drug and alcohol service in Lewisham does have a dual diagnosis lead who does deal with people who have both, you know, acute um, mental health problems and substance misuse issues. But generally, I think he's the only, you know, there's one specialist um, in that service who, who will do both. And realistically, it's a huge percentage of their clients who have severe psychological and substance misuse issues. Um 
So you do get these workers that pop up occasionally, but it's such a specialism. They're so in, in such high demand, um, unfortunately. And you do also get, you know, psychiatric services that will go, you know, and spend a day once a week in a drug and alcohol service as well. So there is slightly easier access. Right. So, you know, the beginnings of it are there. There's just not, there's not enough money, really, I don't think. Right. Well, I think this is uh, one of the challenges we have in the Western world. We we like to treat the symptoms as opposed to the cause. Uh, you know, that's you go to the doctor and oh, this is your symptom. Here's your uh, pill, right? Yeah. Rather than say, okay, well, when did this start? How did you know where where where's the source and the root of this problem? And let's let's focus on fixing that. Um, so it, it, it's not surprising, but it never ceases to disappoint. Um, I would yeah. say. But yes, as you said, we're not going to turn this into a rant <laughs> about uh, the misguided uh, uh, direction of services. Uh, so, so again, we're talking about the, that the services are asking the person experiencing the problems and the challenges and the the insecurity and so forth to prove themselves. So they, they're saying, prove to me that I can trust you before I will help you. Yeah. Right. And so what we want to do instead is to say, trust me, I will be with you and I will support you and I will show you and then you will that way you will be helped so by and i, I suppose this is you know mahatma gandhi said be the change you want to see in the world so in order for someone to trust me i have to equally show up as trustworthy yeah it's a two way street right definitely um I mean, housing first, sure, you get the housing first. And then um, it's not just about a home. It's possibly even more. It's about the support relationship with your support worker. Um, it's kind of proven through various, well, a lot of research, actually, that uh, if you have trauma based on relationships and early you know, early attachment issues with your parents or your caregivers. Um, one of the main ways that you can recover from relationship trauma is by forming other strong, respectful and healthy relationships. And that's something we actually offer um, as support workers. We can't become someone's parent or their friend, but we can offer some, some really clear boundaries, really respectful relationship, really reliable. We will always show up when we say we're going to. We can really work around the client's needs to do whatever we can to try and work with them. Um, and that is how you eventually build trust. Um, when we start off with clients, as I say, a lot of the time they're just not, they're not engaging. They don't want to see us because they think it's going to be the same thing they've seen thousand times before and like yeah fair enough why should they trust me yeah. <laughs> we've never met you know um I'm just for all they know a random 
worker who's you know I'm being paid to do this job I don't necessarily care about it blah 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 but in reality it's like I really want to prove to that client that I do have their best interests at heart um and that it will be a different experience for them this time around um once they start to believe that the change is really really visible yeah and I I think just to kind of uh, zoom out a bit it is systematic in our society uh, this whole idea of mistrust that uh, you know the if you look at a business the whole reason we have a or even you can look at religion or you can look at the government the reason we have a hierarchy is because the people the common person is not trusted to be doing the best for themselves and the collective and yeah. So when we, we look at businesses that have gone to, for a uh, model of self-management, basically you, nobody in the business can tell anybody to do anything. They, you know, it, it's completely self-managed. And we find that these businesses are not only thriving, but they are sustainable as well. Because if you hit a rough patch, then suddenly, Rather than firing people, everybody says, okay, well, we're all responsible here. We're all responsible for this business. We are going to go down. We're going to halve our salaries or whatever it is for a period. And then we'll have to come back and see what we need to do. Right. So it's, but once you start trusting someone to be the best they can be, yeah, they're not always going to. Prove you, uh, prove you right, but most of the time, if you give them a a good enough purpose to pursue, they will. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, when it comes to, I mean, housing is obviously my main area of of knowledge, but um, we currently have in the private renting sector a massive crisis really where house prices are you know renting prices are going up and up mm-hmm. expected to just you know <laughs> landlords don't have a great relationship with tenants at the moment and it, and it's often you know we're, we're trusting a landlord we have to trust a landlord for for literally the place where we live and that we're in this situation where you can't even trust your housing provider a lot of the time um despite paying all this money and and there's just no sense of joint uh responsibility you know it doesn't go both ways um in that relationship and again with with homelessness it it goes both ways i i will support my client but i need to see a little bit of uh commitment from them as well to to work with me um and it sounds like that's it's kind of a similar thing when it comes to the businesses you have to be able to trust trust each other yeah to actually get anywhere and and that that way everyone's held accountable yeah no it, it is it is that showing up and I, i'll uh, come in with another input in a minute but uh fast wants to chime in hi sorry i i've joined lee um i'm not really up to date with the full discussion but from what i've heard so far i've just and it's just making me question something basically i've I just one of my personal experiences 
one of my one of my neighbors rents his property and um he actually rented it out to uh one of his workers at his company somebody who was working for him like an electrician so he was subletting so he I, was I'm renting and then he was renting renting out in his uh, power does he own the property and then he renting out to someone who works for him? no he he owns the property okay and he's rented it out to one of his workers with the trust that he's going to look after his property maintain it live in it and he has somewhere safe to live you know in a good area now what ended up happening was when i moved in i don't know what issue it was i don't know if it was anything to do with my religion or my outlook or anything like that but he became really aggressive towards me he started throwing a lot of stuff in my garden dog poop being thrown over the garden wall and a lot um you know like smashing bins and a lot of stuff started happening and i'm like wow i mean i i don't even know this time you know i don't even know what i've done or what you know so obviously i had to find out who the landlord was and have a chat with him and unfortunately <laughs> yeah i mean things didn't really work out between them two i mean they got into because obviously the the property owner the landlord got upset then the guy got fired from his job and not only that he he lost a safe place a property to live in and it was quite sad really i mean i say sad although i've had so many issues for nine odd months or whatever but it is quite sad that you know he got given such a great property and a really good area to live in and then i don't know i mean yeah, it is sad. It sounds like you were obviously a victim in that situation from this behaviour from from your neighbour, but also, in some ways, I'm sure the person there. It sounds like they've got, you know, they're not acting logically. They don't necessarily have a great state of mind, so they're also a, a kind of victim of their circumstances, and that is always really, really difficult in housing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean. Yeah, Sorry, go ahead, Bas. <laughs> First, yeah, go ahead. The next door landlord uh, owner did say, you know, he was such a great worker at work. And that's why he trusted him to the point of like, you know, oh, you know what? Actually, I let you live at my property at a very low rent. And you can look after my property. And I trust you with it. But then I moved in next door. And then there was a totally different side showing. And then it's really sad for the fact that he was actually his his man like you know he was actually um what's the word he was actually like an employee of his and he was actually living at his employers one of his employers property mm -hmm. so oh. not only did it affect him personally in terms of personal relationship but also like a work relationship so yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I suppose we never know what's going to trigger a person, and as we've talked about a lot of times on this, uh, in these conversations, it's you know any trigger that 
we experience is going to be a trigger of whatever trauma you're carrying uh, you know from from your adult perspective big or small because oftentimes as adults we look at our uh, our experiences as children and we we can't understand why something like that would necessarily cause subconscious trauma with us because we're not looking at it from the perspective of the child version of ourselves so when you're looking at someone like that whatever it was that you triggered within him obviously it has nothing to do with you it's all to do with him but clearly he's had some experience that uh, has been very traumatic for him to start acting out from that perspective of that trauma uh, and suddenly go into this very as Josie says you know uh, not you know he's not acting rationally right so that irrational behavior oftentimes is when a trigger hits and it's it just throws someone out for a loop and that will then cause them to act out if there is a trigger that now blossoms into this whole behavior uh, pattern now that will reflect both in you know home environment personal environment their friends their work whatever it may be uh, because now you have a a, a mental process going uh, so it is it is challenging and you know i suppose a landlord is not a psychotherapist unless that is that person's profession but you know it, it's not for you Faz, it wouldn't be your your you wouldn't be in a position to go to him and say what is what's going on what have you experienced because you <laughs> if you are the trigger for it, it might not be you that would the trigger you might just have been the you know the the person that he acted out on it could have been something completely different that triggered him but you mm. ended up being the kind of uh, target for it uh, so the the uh, i think the bottom line is that a third party coming in and starting to understand what this guy's what's triggered him could then help alleviate that but clearly that didn't happen in this case. So he lost his house, he lost his job and so forth. And that's, I think that's oftentimes how people end up on the streets to begin with, right? But for me, it's a really clear, really good example, actually, of, you know, we say that if there's a will, we could we could house everyone. We could just use that, all the government funding to just put people in flat. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that for, for many reasons, but one of them is that, actually just giving someone a space to live is a great start but if they because you know presumably this landlord decided to help this person out because they were homeless now there's going to be a reason that they're homeless in the first place it sounds like although they may not have been able to predict any of this this tenant obviously has some really really severe mental health issues um just giving someone a space and leaving them to it is not always gonna gonna work out and I think the landlord in this in this instance was obviously trying to do the right thing it was trying to help but maybe Mm. underestimated what it can take to then actually help someone to to live safely and to live in a way that's not causing antisocial behavior to others they were my 
client, you know, this tenant was someone that I look after, I would be having very clear conversations with them right from the beginning to them about where's this behavior coming from. Um, and, and even telling them this, this is not appropriate because many people wouldn't have learned how to treat their neighbors. They wouldn't have been brought up in a way to, to even consider the right way to be a neighbor. Um, so there's so much, there's so much that's involved that um, bless him, this landlord for, for trying to help, but actually they might've uh, even compounded this guy's situation by not providing the right support or not, but just by not being a professional who can provide that support. Well, I, I think the challenge is also uh, coming back to kind of the, the, the trust issue. The person, if, if you're coming from a homeless situation, you're, you're going to have this mistrust towards everybody. So it might have been the smallest little thing that then creates or triggers this defense mechanism with that person because as you said before Josie that homeless people tend to be in a state of fight and fight or flight constantly so they have the adrenal functions are pumping constantly uh, it's going 24/7 uh, right so what is going to be your first response if you know it could be that Someone puts the bin out and the bin is a little bit too close to their bins or something like that. Their first response is not going to be, oh, I better go and talk to this person and just let them know that I don't uh, appreciate that. Or alternatively, ah, well, they're just, I, I'm not even going to bother with that. That's nothing. Their first response is going to be, I'm in danger because now I've been triggered and now I need to defend myself. Mm. Because uh, for for a homeless person, it's always going to be this idea. Uh, well, it's, it is going to be clear and present danger, oftentimes when you're on the street. So your defense mechanism is going to be uh, very extreme in that respect. So when you come into a position where you're actually in a normal, where you don't have to defend yourself, you're still going to be in that mental space, right? Yes. That, you know, when we look at the impact of trauma on the brain, um, it's very interesting. <laughs> but um, the, the way that those past things, past things that have happened just stay in the way that your brain works, um, even when you are then actually physically safe, just that feeling of not being safe is, is very real and can cause people to really, what looks like from the outside, um, have really self-sabotaging behaviours that look completely illogical. But to them in their state of this post-traumatic kind of mindset, they're, they're, they're not thinking with the, the logical part of their brain. They're just in the survival mode, self-defense stage, which might not the brain is going for. Well, it is that the subconscious patterns and habits that you you've worked uh, that uh, you've kind of worked with for your entire life it's going to take some serious work of self-reflection and being able to go within uh, that I mean most of us don't have that capacity to capacity to do anyway and if you're in that kind of fight or flight situation 
or your uh, mentality, it's going to be even more difficult because you, you don't see yourself as having the space to sit down and say, okay, why am I reacting this way? Right? Yeah. And then it's just very unfortunate for for Faz and anyone else who was around in, in that area, you know, that it wasn't handled in the best in the best way, in a preventative way. Because, you know, if, if he'd been given the right support, if he hadn't ended up in this situation in the first place, then none of that would have happened. It's just a real, a real shame. Because it was well, explanation, obviously, there are it's not a complete excuse. You know, and it does still obviously impact people, and that's what happens when people slip through. Yeah, it is a vicious circle. I'm just seeing the message there. Yeah, it is um, because now he's also been evicted, and presumably that's going to add to the trauma. And if he doesn't get the right support, and if there isn't a support service available um, for whatever reason, then yeah, it's just going to keep happening. And that's what happens when we don't properly fund and provide proper psychologically informed services well and also it's going to be that validation for the patterns and habits that they have since before that yeah see i can't trust anybody yeah now i've been thrown out again i've lost my job again i can't trust anybody whereas it's not really when you're in that mental state you can't look within and say what's my position here what why am i responsible for here you don't that's not part of your process your your whole process is looking at, at the external and say what what's my threat level here what am yeah. i what do i need to defend myself against here right so it's and being able to uh, as you ask in the uh, comments here how to rebuild that trust what can be uh, to um, what can what steps can be taken to rebuild those bridges? And it is really about the work that Josie does, uh, specifically on uh, with the homeless, homelessness or uh, homeless uh, uh, women, is to prove that you can be trusted, that you are going to stick around. And we really have to look at, you know, if... If Josie was to react every time someone did something and take it personally and, you know, make assumptions about her uh, cl clients, as she calls them, uh, then that's going to break down very quickly. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> Josie needs to have her mental faculties in order. She has to be able to reflect on herself and say, you know what, it's not about me. It's about their process uh, and not take it personally. Right. So. Because then you you can show up for them even if they are not showing up for you, right? Yeah, or even if they're not showing up for themselves. Right. You know, just actually being able to step in. And and where, when it comes to them potentially acting out with um, what I would call self-sabotaging behaviour, because this kind of antisocial behaviour like Faz has described, you know, it's not helping anyone. It's not helping them either. And for, for yeah, for for there to then be a, a support worker, if there were one, if there had been one, um, it might have been possible to offer an alternative. To say, you know, I've seen that you've been acting in this way. First of all, where where are those feelings coming from? There is always a, an explanation, even if it seems really illogical, and it's generally 
mental health related, but it could be something really specific. As you say, it could be the bin was in slightly the wrong place. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm your support worker. What can I do that would maybe make this situation better so that you you don't have to resort to these coping mechanisms? And that's not always possible in every scenario, but it's something you can build on gradually over time. Just, I know, you know, saying to a client, I know you can't cope with this right now, but I'm going to do whatever I can to make it a bit easier and remove some of the barriers to improving your situation and your behaviour. There are barriers. There's always barriers and a huge amount of housing support workers trying to remove them or at least buffer and be a bit of a, uh, yeah, a gap in between them to try and protect them and, and help them to make better decisions. And clearly, if, if there weren't the support to help them progress in their own process and, and start reflecting on their own process, then they would become dependent on that support. Um, so how, how do you how do you deal with that? Because I think yeah. that that then is part of kind of uh, the, the individual or the client being able to build up their sustainability and their resilience uh, in society. Yeah, it's a constant balance um, that we have to think about all the time in basically every interaction with clients is that, um, you know, if, if you're a, a caring, a person in a caring role, it can feel like you just want to take over this person's life and do everything for them and sort it all out for them. Um, because sometimes, yeah, some, sometimes they aren't making good decisions, but as you say, it's not sustainable to, to actually just do everything for them. Um, and it's not helpful for us. It's not helpful for them in the long term. So it's constantly thinking about boundaries, constantly thinking about the way that it is this two-way relationship and a two-way trust thing um, that... I am, you know, I am going to go a bit extra, a bit further to try and help this client, but also if they're not showing any interest, then we're not going to get anywhere. So it's a addition about, um, you know, saying they're an adult and it's their life. And actually, at the end of the day, if they don't want to change, that's, that's a completely different matter. And they can make little tiny steps and I'll make it as easy as I can for them to also contribute. Um, yeah, so to answer Faz's question, which is, could a plan be put in place for independence progression? Yes, what services should be aiming to do all the time. And um, we have an ongoing support plan with each client just to say, what I'll be helping with? And then how can we transition that towards, you know, maybe next time they could do a bit more more of, of that task or they can take over a part of you know a part of their plan um some client group that i work with um they are extremely vulnerable uh but we do like to to work towards that we can look at and as i said before oftentimes this this these coping mechanisms these uh, this behavior oftentimes is reflected from kind of their 
their perspective as when they experience the trauma to begin with. Uh, so it's the same way when we're working with our own children or you know people that have experienced uh, early years uh, PTSD or trauma that it is that building up the resources for the individual to be able to uh, basically venture out on their own and, and become the best version of themselves and, and make that progress for themselves. So it's oftentimes, or when you're, when you're talking about, you know, raising children, if you don't start trusting your children to be able to make their own mistakes uh, and you you kind of allow them to make those mistakes within the the kind of safety of the the, the parent or the uh, living at home as it were um, then they won't get build up that trust with themselves and the trust with the uh, people or the surrounding environments either so i think it is that paradox uh, that in order to to uh, for someone to trust they need to be able to start trusting themselves that's part of the process but that process is also then being reflected out from or validated by the outside that there is someone that trusts them so the trust that they are experiencing towards themselves that then that being validated in the, on the outside. It's the same thing we talk about uh, in order to be loved, you, the first step is for you to love yourself, right? So I think the whole idea of trust in society, and I mean, we can look at religion, at least Christianity, and uh, you're not trusted to have uh, your own connection with God. You have to go through, you know, a... Uh, authority figure in order to have a relationship with God, a priest or a pope or a bishop, whatever it is. So there is this inherent systematic uh, distrust to the common man, not being able to reflect within and have that experience for themselves. Uh, would you say that's uh, kind of what you see in, uh, in your work as well, Josie? Yes, I think what happens when you're rough sleeping and in and out of homelessness is that often you don't have any space to reflect and to, to build trust in yourself because something traumatic happens. And then instead of being able to afterwards be like, OK, I actually I coped with that. I've survived that and I'm still here. They're always just on to the next traumatic thing, um, which is again where actually giving someone a stable base like through a housing first model can really break that cycle to an extent or at least make it less severe so that with a um a stable place to live and a stable relationship with a support worker when things go wrong um it's that unconditional support that kicks in so Often some of the, the times I've been able to build the best trust with my clients and the best relationships has been after they've actually maybe got something wrong um, or got themselves into a difficult situation. And we've actually maybe lost contact for a bit 
And then when they're ready to engage again, it's saying, okay, I'm still here. Um, because you know, you messed up a bit, like because you're a human and like everyone does. And actually, we're still here because you still deserve somewhere safe to live and you still deserve this support. Um, and that then instills in them that space to reflect and be able to say, yeah, okay, maybe I can trust this person and maybe I can trust myself to get through that difficult kind of situation. Um, and that's only possible when you're out of that constant survival of, of rough sleeping and homelessness. Well, it's uh, progressing on the uh, uh, the um, hierarchy of needs, right? Yes. Yeah, precisely. Exactly. Physical so, that comes first. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, um, yeah, we'll go to fast first and I'll make my comment off there. Mm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, what came to mind was um, in terms of like um, um, self-sabotage comes to mind when we just had uh, this discussion. I mean, I I used to have a friend who went from foster care to foster care to foster care when she was young. Mm. So much so that when she turned 16, she... She got kicked like as well, like she didn't have much support. Yeah. And um, she ended up with this guy who was like 20 years older than her. And she moved in very quickly. And that ended up being her safe space. Yeah. It's a very familiar story. Yeah. Now, the thing is, the relationship was really traumatic. Yeah. Um, and I could see it, you know, it was very trauma based. But she still obviously was there for the safety. Mm-hmm. The safety of a roof, the safety of like, well, this guy provided a house that had a gym and, <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff going on, you know, but still the this, this sabotage, self-sabotage obviously was still there because it, it 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 was so uncomfortable it's 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 a bit like being wanting to be comfortable with the uncomfortable yet still not being able to no matter what because of these past traumas so yeah i, th- I think um the it's interesting because that there's the physical comfort right of living in this nice this nice house and all that stuff but also what looks like uncomfortable for, for someone who's had you know healthy emotional upbringing and, and healthy relationships so this relationship with this guy looks uncomfortable and unpleasant from the outside but actually the chances are this friend who's so used to not having secure attachment because they've moved around so much mm. um finally being in it a relationship no matter how dysfunctional and potentially abusive it is that could feel like comfort and normality and familiarity to to her I'm, I'm sure Christopher would have more say I'm not to be, to be clear I'm not actually a psychologist I just like have read a lot about it and work with traumatized clients but um, I'm sure Christopher would have more to say yeah no just for for the record I'm not a psychiatrist either but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the no, and it is a 
it is trading one aspect of security for another. And it's whatever trade-off you're happy to, or not happy to make, but willing to make, prepared to make. So oftentimes the physical security is the last one that we will sacrifice because it's, it is very imminent and it's very uh, immediate in, uh, in, your, uh, in its uh, feedback, if you like. If you lose your physical security, you notice that right away. Your mm. mental security, it might be something that you can brush off. It's like, you know, you, if you're in a mental abusive relationship, oh, well, the, you know, that's nothing. And then the, you brush it off and then they kind of just snowballs from there and you don't, don't realize it uh, when you're actually in it. It's only when someone looks at it, uh, in from the outside that they go, oh my God, this is not good. And, but the person, the people that are in the experience in the relationship actually don't, don't pay attention to it very much until they come to a point when they ask themselves, am I really happy? Well, and, and it might be that that's their normal model of a relationship yeah. as, as, what they've seen growing up and that's their benchmark for a normal relationship exactly yeah the vast majority of um female housing first clients that's long-term homeless uh women in my experience have are in or have experienced abusive relationships and a lot of that is just repeating those patterns subconscious Mm -hmm. from their childhood that's one of the key ways that trauma tends to play out is just by repeating those traumatic things you've experienced and and clinging to that as a familiar again weirdly comfortable even though it's really damaging um pattern Mm. and that might be the only way that they know how to function in a relationship um and also often it might be that the, the first person who comes along who says that they care about them and will look after them um they will they'll cling to them because that might not be that it might be, it so, might be so much better than what they've ever expected in their life exactly. they, might, they if, might actually see themselves as the most luckiest person alive and if your self-esteem is very low and you and you don't necessarily care about yourself that much or you don't love yourself if some one person is able to come in and say oh yes i'll look after you i'll give you all this all this stuff even if they're then not a great person that still feels like it fills that kind of hole of self-esteem with well okay someone does care about me you know even if in reality they might not be a very caring person at all yeah which is tragic that people should even have that perception but you know that's where we we have to continue to work towards healing as a collective consciousness as humanity uh, at every level and it's it is uh it is a challenge and uh josie just as a side note we're so thankful that you're out there on the front lines uh, uh doing that job because that's exactly what needs to be done is to mm-hmm. be in the trenches and to really help people become whatever better version of themselves and break the cycle because oftentimes it's it is and i I use the term karma because it describes it very well, ancestral karma, where 
you know, you might have had, uh, you know, great, great, great grandmother or grandfather, whatever, who's experienced something traumatic. And that then is permeated down the uh, generations. And at the end, <laughs> you know, when you come further down the generations, nobody knows where it comes from. But it shows up in the upbringing of, because it's normal, it's part of normalcy. And it's, if someone can break that cycle and say, no, this is not normal. This is what I expect from a healthy relationship. Then you can break that cycle and you can then create a new healthy cycle. And that's, that's why the work you're doing, Josie, is so important because you're helping people break that cycle. Oh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a great job. It's the most meaningful job I could ask for, you know. It's those it's those personal relationships with my clients and then seeing them progress over time that makes it so great. So yeah, I'm just grateful to have it really. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And uh I'm so I'm going to in uh, hopefully in the new year going to I've applied to anyway to become a uh, mentor with the uh, uh, House of Barnabas in London mm, that's to great. become become a uh, mentor for their uh, kind of getting back to work program. Uh, so for anybody out there, there are programs and uh, systems that you can get into to help as a if you're a professional therapist or your coach, mentor, whatever it may be. Because Joseph, would I be right in saying that the biggest lack you have right now in the work that you're doing is our professional therapists who can come in and help out with uh, the trauma treatments yeah I would say so um it's a it's a difficult role to fill because um I mean obviously as a psychotherapist you could be paid a lot more we know we all acknowledge that but it's extremely meaningful work um it takes a lot of patience to work with this client group well perhaps you don't do it as a full, full time but if you have i think in the uk we have about two and a half thousand psychotherapists mm. you know if if each of them puts in you know one hour a week that's two yeah. and a half thousand hours a week that you could be out there supporting uh, the homeless population or just those that don't and I know a lot of I do pro bono work myself and this will obviously be part of it mm. don't get paid to do that job but I think it is important to be out there and do that give that support um, because otherwise we're, we're never going to see an end of of the human suffering or the that kind of the trauma that is going to perpetuate generation after generation after generation yeah um no absolutely it's it would make a huge difference um and also just for for those professionals to experience the full the full breadth of different kind of human experiences we have in in this country at the, at the very least you know just getting to know people from different backgrounds is always valuable for your development and your understanding of the world, in, in my opinion. That's one of the great things I've had working with this client group, um, mm -hmm. just seeing different people's perspectives, life experiences. Oh, and we 
by the way, you don't get into this profession because you want to become immensely wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> there certainly uh, are ways of uh, doing that. There's certainly, if you look at Tony Robbins, I mean, uh, yeah, you can do that. Um, but I think uh, most people actually get into this profession because they want to help. So uh, I think it's something that would be very close to anybody's heart to who's in a caring profession you know whether you you know medical doctor or nurse or psychotherapist or therapist of any kind that um, is part of why we do this is because we actually care uh, care for humanity as a whole um so joseph what first of all what what would your recommendations be if someone wanted to get engaged or involved in this? What would be your uh, suggestion as to, you know, if they, people want to volunteer or perhaps have a career in in uh, these type of uh, social services? Because bench, uh, bench Outreach that you work for is an independent uh, um uh organization right it's not a uh, uh, government-run organization well it's a combination so we are an independent uh charity but we're commissioned by the local authority to provide a housing first service as part of their homelessness strategy right. um, my my recommendation if people want to get involved is uh if you have a look on homeless link uh, as a kind of database for homeless services uh, is that there's a website um they've got a map where you can put in your postcode and see which services are local um services are always looking for volunteers donations um and you can even see which jobs are available but um volunteering is a really good place to start um I'm biased because I work for a small local charity, but I do think they are really beautiful organisations who are very embedded in their communities. And that is, yeah, a really nice area to look into. And I mean, that that might not only be homelessness, it could be uh, any type of uh, charity or uh, position where you want to help uh, those that are less fortunate or are challenged or in one way or another, right? So uh, there are these charities out there that you can work for, or you can volunteer for, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and again, look at, you know, look at your local authority website, see what kind of uh, not-for-profit organizations are around um, as well. And yeah, when it when it comes to to therapists and social workers and the more professional side of things, there are certain qualifications you would need. Um, so that that might be a bit different. <laughs> that requires some some further education. Well, I mean, I will say on this uh, on this podcast, we do have a lot of therapists and uh, health workers that uh, that do uh, <laughs> listen in. So yeah. <laughs> We we are uh, uh, reaching out to the right audience and uh, uh, telling people that please go out there and uh, just uh, help out a little bit. Um, yeah, so there are organisations already set up who have the clients, and I'm sure if you approach any of them, they'd be very glad for professional help. Yeah. So yeah, first the uh, uh, bench outreach is in Deptford. Um, yes, southeast London. Yeah. So the. Uh, uh, borough of Lewisham because mm -hmm. I, I think first you're in London too aren't you 
No, I'm actually uh, up north, northwest, near my, oh. uh, well, two hours from uh, Manchester. But I do know people up, uh, down south in London. Um, I know a friend who work, who works in psych, psych, psychology. Um, and I know uh, a friend who, who works for... <laughs> I can't remember the name. Yeah, um, who works for a company where they help sixteen to twenty-one year olds. Okay. With yeah. finding jobs and um, you know, housing and uh, all these benefits and things like that. Um. So yeah. That's great. Mm, yeah, that's why I thought I might uh, of asking all these questions because if they are able to maybe or I could pass a message on I mean you know no pressure obviously but yeah well you, yeah, can, I... you can DM me as well and, uh, or send it directly to Josie whichever and uh, um, I think connections are always good and uh, if Josie can reach out to someone then I think she would be very happy to do that <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm just popping a link in the chat as well there's a, a map of uh, that do the specific model of support which I was talking about, Housing First. Um, there's a map of them across the country um, on a little link that I'm putting in the chat now. Okay, cool. Brilliant. Thank you so Great. much. Great. All right. Beautiful. All right. So um, I think we've uh, kind of gone through and treated the topic of trust here. And uh, I hope that for everybody listening, that the parallels between using homelessness or the kind of the process of getting out of homelessness with the trauma and uh, dependencies and whatever coping mechanisms um, that you can bring that into your work environment you can understand that from the perspective of your home environment and so forth that you being able to show up and look into yourself and see how you can trust yourself to show up in the uh, the best version of yourself will then attract that. Uh, you will then be able to reflect that trust outwards as well. Um, and I was going to say, Josie, uh, have you read the uh, book, uh, The Four Agreements? I haven't. Okay. Uh, it, it's a very simple concept and it's something that I bring with me to all my clients basically the four agreements it's a agreements you make with yourself every day to not take anything personally mm -hmm. to not assume anything about anybody else to use your words impeccably but i would change that to control uh, use your words your thoughts and your actions impeccably mm -hmm. uh, and always do your best yeah so you, you were talking about before that i think there's a lot of, uh, for your clients, a lot of uh, anxiety around proving themselves. Yeah. Once I get to that stage of actually being in, having the feeling that they are being supported and loved and so forth, they, they are desperately trying not to screw up. Mm -hmm. And if they do screw up, it's there's this tremendous amount of guilt and shame associated with it. Um, but I think if they can understand that, understand then that you can only do your best. Yeah, there's only uh, something you can control. 
Exactly. And whatever you do that your best today is going to be this different from your best tomorrow and your best yesterday, then however it is, it's always going to be your best. Yeah. And just learn from it and reflect on it. Then you will be able to bring that forward as a lesson and something that you can lean back on and say, oh, that's how that happened before. Perhaps I do it this way next time. Yeah, there's a good message for for clients and for the support workers helping them. So yeah, no, sure. So uh, it's a book. Uh, I don't know. If <laughs> it's some some a book that you can bring with you to your clients, but I think it is just so healthy when you when you're starting to to be in that process of uh, kind of healing yourself mm. to just simplify things. Yeah, because oftentimes we just make things too complex and just being able to simplify things down to four agreements is such a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's great. I'll look into that. So, and first is saying she's heard about that book. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read that full out. <laughs> All right. Very good. So, Josie, I will put your contact details in the and the links that you've shared with us here today. I will put that in the uh, show descriptions uh, or the episode description. Um, so is there anything, else, any last words, anything you want to share beyond what we talked about that you think is of uh, key importance, perhaps uh, how to donate to uh, your charity? Yes, we so we have a website is www.benchoutreach.com and we're also on Twitter and Facebook. You'll be able to find us, just search Bench Outreach. Um, it says on our website how to donate and do give us a follow on, on the social medias. Yeah, beautiful. All right, well, Josie, thank you so much for showing up here today and uh, joining us. So we uh, joining me in this conversation, joining us in this conversation and uh, sharing your experiences from the front line. And, Thanks uh, for having me. It's been really nice. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, again, thank you for being out there doing this very important work and uh, good luck in the process. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see some big changes in society that will uh, be supportive to your course as well. Hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Take care now. You too. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Embodying trust and projecting trust outwards is not a guarantee that people will show up and uh, validate that trust for you. However, there's a prerequisite for that trust to be returned in kind. And the law of attraction teaches us that the more we embody trust, the more we project that trust outwards the more opportunities will show up for us to experience that trust being validated but also for others to start trusting us mind you the trust is precipitated uh, with a compassion empathy and uh, connection from your side um, as we projecting those aspects or those values out towards others then that will then build the uh, the bridge between us and others to have that trust emerge quite naturally. If you would like to explore this aspect of trust uh, more within yourself, then uh, please contact us at thealchemyexperience.co.uk 
and uh, click on the link for the 30 minute free consultation and uh, let's explore if our workshops might be the place for you to explore this aspect of yourself a little bit further. But for now, this is it for us today and I wish you all the best and I hope to uh, see you back here next time at the Alchemy Experience podcast. In the meantime, take care and enjoy.